Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number five, Joshua chapters two and three. Let's uh, continue in Joshua chapter two and the story of Rahab, the prostitute innkeeper of Jericho. Joshua has sent two spies to scout the way, to check out the defenses of Israel's crossing point over the Jordan. And the first city they're going to encounter in enemy territory is going to be Jericho. The encampment of Israel is waiting at Shittim in Moab for the spies to return. Let's reread chapter 2 of Joshua. Yahushua, the son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim with these instructions, go and inspect the land and Jericho. They left and came to the house of a prostitute named Rahav, where they spent the night. The king of Jericho was told about it. Tonight some men from Israel came here to reconnoiter the land. The king of Jericho sent a message to Rahav, bring out the men who came to you and are staying in your house because they've come to reconnoiter all the land. However, the woman, after taking the two men and hiding them, replied, Yes, the men did come to me, but I don't know where they had come from. The men left around the time when, you shut, when they shut the gate, when it was dark. Where they went, I don't know. But if you chase after them quickly, you can overtake them. Actually, she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them under some stalks of flax she had spread out there. The men pursued them all the way to the fords at the Yarden, the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuit party had left, the gate was shut. The two men had not yet lain down when she returned to the roof and said to them, I know that Adonai has given you the land. Fear of you has fallen on us. Everyone in the land is terrified at the thought of you. We've heard how Adonai dried up the water in the Sea of Suf ahead of you when you left Egypt. What you did to the two kings of the Amorai on the other side of the Jordan Sichon and Og, that you completely destroyed them. As soon as we heard it, our hearts failed us. Because of you, everyone's in a state of depression. For Adonai, your God, he is God in heaven above on earth below. So please, swear to me by Adonai that since I have been kind to you, you will also be kind to my father's family. Give me some evidence of your good faith that you will spare the lives of my father, mother, brothers, and sisters, and all who are there so that we won't be killed. And the men replied to her, Our lives are certainly worth yours, provided you don't betray our mission. So when Adonai gives us the land, we will treat you kindly and in good faith. Then she lowered them by a rope through the window, since her house abutted the city wall. Indeed, it was actually built into it. And she told them, Head for the hills so that the pursuit party won't get their hands on you. And hide yourselves there for three days until the pursuers have returned. After that, you can go on your way. And the men said to her, We will not be guilty of violating the oath you made us swear, provided that when we enter the land, you tie this piece of scarlet cord in the window you let us down from, and you gather together in your house, your father, mother, brothers, and your entire father's household. If anyone goes out the doors of your house into the street, he's responsible for his own blood and will be guiltless. 
But everyone who stays with you in the house will be responsible for his blood if anyone lays a hand on him. However, if you say a word about this business of ours, then we'll be free of our oath that you made us swear. According to your words, so be it, she said, and sent them away. And as they departed, she tied that scarlet cord in the window. They left, they arrived in the hills, stayed there three days until the pursuers had returned. The pursuers had searched for them all the way but hadn't found them. Then the two men returned. Descending from the hills, they crossed over and came to Yahushua, the son of Nun, and reported everything that had happened to them. Truly, Adonai has handed over the land to us, they told Joshua. Everyone in the land is terrified that we're coming. Well, two Israelite spies have gone to the inn run by Rahab. And I'm going to continue calling this place an inn and not necessarily a house of prostitution because more and more it seems that, was, that really the place was primarily an ancient motel. Although it is equally as likely that prostitution took place there as a matter of course. Usually in the Bible when it associates... Hmm, a house with a person is a designated house of prostitution, it says, the house of so-and-so. And in our case, it would be the house of Rahab. And we don't get that phrase here. Further, there is utterly no implication of sexual activity between these two spies and Rahab. And as those of you who have gone through the Torah with me are well aware, the Bible is not at all shy about dealing rather explicitly when sexual matters crop, crop up. In verse 3, the king of Jericho accuses Rahab of harboring two Israelite spies. And there is no doubt the king had been expecting just such a thing because everyone within a couple of hundred miles knew where the Israelites were camping and that it was their intention to conquer the land of Canaan. I mean, after all, you can't move three million people around in secret. Okay. Not only that, but it was by then common knowledge that Canaan was the Hebrews' destination because they'd always openly stated it. So the only open question was where Israel would cross the Jordan and attack first, and when. And it's apparent that the king's soldiers had been watching carefully as the various travelers came and went from the city of Jericho. Now, Rahab's response to the soldiers is really quite ironic. She sides with the spies. She hides them at great personal risk so that the king's men won't find them. Then she lies to the soldiers and says that although the men had been at her end, they're gone now. And further, she really didn't know who they were or where they were from. She explains that at about the time of the daily shutting of the city gates, the men went out of the city and haven't returned. Now, the city gates of walled cities in that era were usually shut around nightfall, just as we kind of tend to close our windows and doors as darkness approaches. Because, you know, in all times and in all lands, nighttime is when predators human and animal, wander around seeking their prey. Well, after convincing the king of Jericho's soldiers that the two spies had left the city, 
she goes up to the roof where the men were hiding. And the roofs on houses in that era, and still really pretty much so in the Middle East to this day, were used for a variety of practical purposes. In the summer, um, the roof was typically where summer all of the family slept. It was sometimes the guest area, or it was maybe even offered to strangers passing through as a place to spend the night. Or it was used as a place to hang and cure meat, or like in our story, to spread out organic material to dry. In this case, flax. Since flax was cut into long stalks when it was harvested and spread out thickly on a flat surface to dry, it was a perfect hiding place. Well, it's interesting, I think, that never does the Bible condemn Rahab for her blatant lies to her government authority figures. Actually, her faith is even held up for admiration. You know, she is compared favorably to some of the great saviors of Israel by the writer of the New Testament book of Hebrews. Listen to, listen to Hebrews 11.30. By trusting the walls of Jericho fell down after the people had marched around them for seven days. By trusting, Rahab the prostitute welcomed the spies and therefore didn't die with all those who were disobedient. What more should I say? There isn't time to tell about Gidon, Barak, Shimshon, Yiftak, David, Shmuel, and all the other prophets. So although the Bible doesn't condemn Rahab for her lies, it doesn't excuse them either. Often it's said that because she was a pagan Canaanite and a whore, that the Bible didn't have any expectation of her to be a truthful person, or rather the Lord didn't have any of that kind of expectation, so neither does the Bible. But, but there's no indication of that view at all in the Word of God. I think that while we should not admire Rahab's lies, Neither, neither should they bother us very much. Okay. She was faced with a situation that most of us have been faced with during our lives. To lie or risk hurting somebody. Okay. Sadly, it's the state of the world in which we live today that we must constantly find ourselves having to choose between the lesser of two evils. Or let me put it, that more succinctly. Do we commit a greater sin or a lesser sin because at times, like here for Rahab, there's really no middle ground? Had she told the truth, those men would have been discovered, executed, and Joshua would have had to try something else. You know, one of the great doctrinal errors of some streams of modern Christian denominational thought is that a sin is a sin is a sin. One's as bad as another. Stealing a loaf of bread is no different than committing adultery. Worshipping false gods is no different than, no different than going 40 in a 35 mile per hour zone. That is just patently anti-scriptural. Further, how does one choose between the lesser of two evils if there is no greater or lesser? 
There are countless sad tales of Christians turning in their Jewish neighbors in wartime Germany and then later saying that it would have been a sin to lie to the authorities. So they had no choice but to do the Christian thing and send these innocents to their probable deaths. Okay. Rahav is a great illustration to point out such an absurd doctrine. All right. And the writer of Hebrews goes so far as to hold Rahav up as a godly example. Now Rahav must have been pretty believable. Dare I say, she must have seemed even trustworthy. Because the soldiers believed her and immediately left the city to go hunting for those two spies. Matter of fact, they go all the way to the natural and well-known fording points of the Jordan. Yet another indication that they, by the way, that they knew exactly where Israel was and of their intent to cross the Jordan River into Canaan. Now as the soldiers left, the city gate was shut behind them so that the spies would be trapped if they were still inside, but blocked from re-entry if they'd gone out. Well, now comes this profound and unexpected moment of Rahab's confession of faith in the God of Israel. It's here that we learn the why behind Rahab's risky protection of two men who were complete strangers to her. And she begins with the words, I know. I know, she says, that the Lord has given her, given, given this land over to Israel. Of course, this is not, this is referring to her land, is it not? The very place she was living as a Canaanite. Actually, the Hebrew does not say that the Lord gave Israel the land. It says, Y-H-W-H. Yehovah gave Israel the land. Rahav knew. Rahav knew the formal personal name of the God of Israel. Now believe me when I tell you though, that merely knowing the name of Israel's God was nothing supernatural nor frankly particularly outstanding. People of that era had great interest in the names of the various gods because it was considered vital and important. Yehovah's name by now was known far and wide, just as Molech's name was known far and wide. But those simple words out of Rahab's mouth, I know, also indicates her unequivocal belief, especially on an intellectual level, of what she was about to say. She didn't suspect... She didn't guess. She didn't waffle back and forth. She knew. And what she knew began with what was firm fact to her. Yehovah had already turned Canaan over to the Israelites. It was a done deal. Now that is a confession of faith that a significant portion of the church would do well to remember and to repent of its more current, prevalent view that maybe God didn't give that land to Israel after all. And if he did, it isn't entirely theirs any longer. 
So Rahab goes on that the people of Canaan are in a state of depression and fear because they know that Israel's coming and that the chances of defeating them are slim. Why do the Canaanites think that way? Although it doesn't say so, the sheer numbers of Israel's 600,000 man army were overwhelming. But on another level, what Rahab confides to the spies is that everyone has heard of the parting of the Red Sea for Israel to pass through when they came from Egypt. Everyone in Canaan has heard what happened to Sihon and Og when the Israelites destroyed them. So the minute the people of Canaan heard about these events, they immediately gave credit to the God of Israel, Yehovah, and knew they were in trouble. They lost all hope. And it says in verses 11 and 12, Yehovah, your God, he is God in heaven and he is God on earth. Now, don't let that statement just slip right by you. Saying that Yehovah is both God of heaven and God of earth is quite a confession. There were gods whose only realm was heaven and there were gods whose only realm was earth but among the pagans there was no single Babylonian mystery religion god that was god of heaven and earth. In order for there to exist in the mind of the people of that era this monotheistic notion of only one god it meant that a paradigm that had been understood since time immemorial had to be overturned. That the God of earth was separate from the God of heaven. Rather, instead, there is actually but one God who had authority over both realms. We're going to see this phrase, God of heaven and earth, continued right on into the New Testament era, not because the Hebrews still thought that two separate gods ruled heaven and earth, but because in the Greek thought and language, those two realms must have two separate gods. We use that same phrase, God of heaven and earth, even to this day in songs and in worshipful declarations, but only in a poetic sense. 2,000 years ago and more, the Jews who said, he is the God of heaven and the God of earth, meant it literally as a way to oppose the pagan beliefs of that era. Now, let me summarize what's just happened. Rahab stood up and walked the aisle. Rahab just declared the authority of the God of Israel in her life. She declared that he is God of heaven and earth, and since there's no other known realms for a God to govern, then Yehovah is the only God for her to bow down to. Rahab trusted the Lord, and it was credited to her as righteousness. This was a very simple faith that she had, but it was also very practical. She didn't know much else about the God of Israel, other than he had given her homeland of Canaan over to the Hebrews. And that he defeated and destroyed everyone who opposed him. 
But from a practical sense, she knew she did not want to be on the wrong side of this battle or this God. She didn't want to be an enemy of God's people because in her mind, the end results were certain and terrible because of their God. And this wasn't a convert now and repent later attitude Rahab was expressing. It wasn't an attempt to just kind of deceive the spies, all right? although they rightfully expressed skepticism about her pronouncement. Okay. This is proved by her putting her freedom and life on the line by concealing these enemy spies and then lying to her government authorities about it all and then facilitating their escape. I said that this was a practical act of faith and we see that out of all this, out of this declaration, Rahab wanted something in return. She wanted that she and all her family would be spared. Now, folks, what better expression of the gospel can we find than this? Anyone who comes to Yeshua without understanding what a practical decision and commitment that they have made ought to be questioned about what they think they know. Okay. We should be coming to Yeshua understanding what Rahab understood. You either submit to the God of Israel or you're destroyed. The destruction may not be immediate or physical, but it's certain. We should understand that this is the God of heaven and earth and that while an idealistic view of an eternal future with him is certainly important, we do have an earthly life to live. And Yehovah is God of our earthly life as well as of our heavenly spiritual life. In verse 14, the two spies agree that in return for her helping them, they would save her and her family from the coming onslaught. But there were conditions. She could not wait until the spies were gone and then tell the authorities to cover her tracks. Even their oath to Rahab is like the gospel. Our life for yours. They are making an oath, these spies, to Rahab, that not only will they protect her, but also that if anything happens to any of her family, they will forfeit their lives for their failure. Rahab's house abutted the city wall, such that a window into her house, probably above the roof, was actually a small hole in the city's outer wall. Houses built virtually into the wall were usual and customary. One reason for it um, was that at least one wall of somebody's house was already built. And it was a pretty sturdy wall. Building a stone dwelling was back-breaking work. Right? And it took a long time to do it. Stones had to be gathered, trimmed, transported, placed. That's why the rubble from previous homes and buildings was always the first choice 
of building material for those who built anew upon the ruins of the old. Now, out of that window, Rahab dropped a rope for the men to climb down and escape. But before that happened, she instructed them where to hide for a while. She told them to go to the hills, go to the nearby mountains. Now, anyone who's ever been to Jericho understands this suggestion immediately. Okay. The mountains near Jericho are due west, and Rahab had observed the king's soldiers going due east to check out the fording areas of the Jordan. Further, these hills are riddled with caves to hide in and provide shelter. Stay there for three days, she instructs, until these soldiers return, then it'll be safe for you to return to the Jordan and to Joshua. But the spies want to make something very clear because they've pledged their lives in this bargain. Okay. They have sworn to Rahab invoking the name of Yehovah. So they want to be sure that Rahab understands that there are conditions upon her. Otherwise, they claim that the pledge is going to be vacated. Now, Rahab must do three things. She must hang that same rope with a scarlet thread wound around it out that same window to indicate to Israel's soldiers which house they're to spare. Second, when Joshua's army surrounds the city, Rahab must quickly gather her family to her inn because only those who are with her are going to be protected. And third, they have to remain there until the two spies come to fetch them. If they go out into the city streets prematurely, they will be killed right along with all the other inhabitants of Jericho. And to all of this, she agreed. Now, Christianity has always suspected that the scarlet thread was significant. The color red usually signifies one of two things in the Bible blood or redemption. And of course we know they're completely tied together. I think it's not off the mark to say that the red thread coming out of Rahab's window is the equivalent of the red blood painted on the doorposts of the Israelite homes in Egypt at the first Passover. The idea being, of course, that death will pass over this house of any family that displays it. So I feel very comfortable seeing the scarlet thread as a symbol of redemption for Rahab and her family. But there's more. Now I'm not going to go into too much depth at the moment for one reason we've discussed this before. We'll, we'll have some more opportunities to revisit it in later lessons. But at the heart of everything that's occurring in this story and that's going to occur in Joshua, the book of Joshua, during the conquest of, conquest of Canaan, is holy war. And at the heart of holy war is the law of Harem. Or in English, it's called the ban. B-A-N, the ban. Now the principle is that in <clears throat> true holy war, it was initiated and led by Jehovah. Israel is not in holy war. 
entitled to the usual spoils of war that accompany battlefield victories. Rather, all of the spoils of a holy war belong to the Lord. The people are banned, harem, from these spoils because these spoils are holy property. And in addition to the valuable material, things like gold and silver and flocks and herds are the defeated people themselves. They are also spoils of war. Now in most wars, the people were taken as slaves and servants or even added to the conqueror's own army. But in holy war, there was really only one way for God to receive those spoils of war. The spoils had to be destroyed and burned up. Okay. Now, there was some modification of that principle in the sense that God's priests were his earthly representatives, so some of those holy war spoils could go to them if the Lord so directed it. But, for the most part, the priests and Israel as a whole were not to accumulate spoils or people, they were to destroy them. Bottom line, <clears throat> the people of Jericho were not going to become Israelite slaves. They're going to be annihilated. This was holy war. So for Rahab and her family to be spared was really quite unusual. On the surface, this is actually a violation of the law of Haram. Now it's interesting that these two spies felt that they had the authority to make Rahab an exception. They had the authority to spare this family. But in the end, it was because of the reality, follow me, it was because of the reality that to declare one's faith in the God of Israel is to be saved. Okay. The spies inherently understood that Rahab and her family merited this because now they were in some sense more Israelite than Canaanite. And you know what? We're going to see this same kind of theme played out with the episode much later in the Bible of Ruth and Naomi. Okay. The spies weren't entirely comfortable in all this. And thus this long and detailed rhetoric about what they promised, under what circumstances, and if Rahab didn't follow the procedure, all bets were off. But the two spies knew that for their own sake, and because of Rahab's confession of faith, something was fundamentally different now. I mean, Rahab and her family were Gentiles, but they worshipped the Israelite God. Hello? Can you see this illustration of exactly what would be professed 1,300 years later in the New Testament? Can you also see that the gospel of the, is an Old Testament promise, not a New Testament invention? 
Can you also see that as Gentile believers, we're in this same strange position as Rahab. We're, neither, we're either fish or fowl, or we're neither fish nor fowl, but something else entirely. We're Gentiles, but we're, yet we're in one spirit with the God of Israel. So are we Israelites with a Gentile body, or are we Gentiles with an Israelite spirit? Okay. I mean, the arguments about this can go on forever. What we know is that by profession of faith in the God of Israel and putting our full trust in his Messiah, exactly how to describe us doesn't much matter, except that we're saved. Now, verses 22 through 24 finish the story of Rahab with the words, uh, with the words that the spies went to the hills and they hid for three days. The soldiers looked and looked and they couldn't ever find the spies so they finally returned to Jericho and then the spies crossed back over the Jordan. They went directly to Joshua and told him everything that had happened. Now note that in addition to their report, they added what really matters the most and they probably couldn't tell, wait to tell their own wives and families about it. They went back and they said, truly the Lord has delivered Canaan into our hands. Okay. The promised land's ours. It's ours for the taking. Okay. Those who will oppose them are shaking in their boots and they know they're already defeated. Well, let's move on to chapter 3 as we witness a truly momentous event. The grand entrance of the nation of Israel into the promised land. Now, for the believer, I'm not sure any event ought to stir our hearts more than this one, except maybe for Yeshua's grand entrance into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey that would shortly lead to his death and our redemption. You know, it's far more than coincidence that a focal point of Israel's entry into their exodus from Egypt was the crossing over of the Red Sea and the ending of their exodus was the crossing over of the Jordan River. They crossed over into the wilderness and then they crossed over out of the wilderness. In addition, we'll, we'll soon see in a later chapter in the book of Joshua that the Passover was associated with, a, with Israel's official end to their exodus and the beginning of their inheritance just as the Passover was also the official mark to the end of their servitude to Pharaoh and the beginning of their redemption. Well, buried just under the surfaces surfaces of this, this chapter 3 that we're going to look at shortly are some principles that can be pretty easily recognizable to a believer if we know what to look for. So I'm going to do my best to point them out as we come to them. Before we do that, though, however, the first few words of chapter 3 are, and don't go there yet, Joshua got up early in the morning. Now, simple and innocuous as that might seem to a modern Westerner, this is leading me 
to discuss yet again the matter of how to think about the material of the Bible as we read it. In other words, we can't approach the Bible as though we're reading a Tom Clancy novel. We, we, we can't read it as though we're perusing a newspaper at our kitchen table. We can't see the Bible through the eyes of Western culture. We must adopt a view as though we are part of the cultural milieu in which it was written. Okay. We must also understand that the Greek language, the earliest known translations of the original Hebrew, then the Latin that the Greek was later translated into, then the English that translated the Latin, all of these languages are linear and rational in nature, whereas Hebrew is circular and organic. To approach the Bible otherwise leads us down dubious rabbit trails, and we arrive at places that produce air-filled and rigid doctrines born of allegory and speculation. There is another element, however, that also bears critical importance for a Torah student to grasp. The Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament especially, was not meant to be read. It was meant to be spoken out loud and passed along orally. This is critical. Thus, the stories and the narratives were created and handed down in a way that was made more for storytellers to speak them than for a student to sit silently and read it. Okay. Now this concept might hurt your head a little bit because ours is a text-based society that utilizes the written word to pass along our thoughts and information. It's nigh on to impossible for we of the Western world to conceive of an oral culture where the written word was only there as a sacred archive so that the stories that would be transmitted from generation to generations by means of storytelling had, a, had an anchor. Okay. The first real use for text in history that was passed along and used in actual textual form <clears throat> was not to teach history or to even instruct detailed aspects of a particular religious cult to the next generation. Instead, <clears throat> excuse me, text was used for accounting records. It was used for contracts right, in, in the more advanced societies and the highly structured economies such as the Egyptians had, the Hittites, and later on the Assyrians. <clears throat> All ancient people, even those with very high literacy rates, preferred the spoken word to the written. The Hebrews of Jesus' day had one of the highest literacy rates in the entire world, surpassing that even of the Roman Empire. All Jewish children were required to attend at least six years of formal schooling. Yet, we hear Yeshua say, let those who have ears listen. He never says, let those who have eyes read. 
Okay, most Hebrews could read in his era. And many could even read Greek as well as Aramaic, even if it was at a fairly elementary level. But they preferred to be taught by means of the spoken word because that was at the heart of their culture and it was the norm for the world. This notion of various societies having different preferences to communicate information and thoughts really shouldn't be foreign to us. Many of my friends and I lament this new visual video world we've evolved towards, whereby it's all any parent can do to get his child to sit down and read a book. They prefer to watch. They prefer to listen rather than to read and comprehend. Now, I'm not going to get into some kind of debate of the merits of any of these methods. The point is, the Bible, and especially the Old Testament, was created in and for an oral culture. So other than for transaction records, all ancient documents were meant to be read out loud, not silently. This is because the vast majority of ancient documents ever found were meant to be transmitted to groups of people, from a small flock of three or four students to crowds of thousands. So when a so-called letter was written down, it would not be handed to its intended recipient like Western Union would a telegram. Rather, a message bearer would read it aloud. Okay? Not because the recipient was illiterate, but because the letter had even been created in a manner that lent itself for oral rather than textual communication. Thus, when seen in its original and not almost completely masked by languages that were created for their ability to, be, uh, ability to be communicated by text better than by the spoken word, we find the Hebrew Bible is just loaded with rhyme and alliteration and poetry and songs and all kinds of various rhetorical devices that achieve that purpose. Okay. Once we translate all those Hebrew phase, uh, phrases into another language, the embedded grammar and structure that will allow you to tell it as a story and have mental pictures drawn and its essence remembered by it entering into our ears gets lost. Okay. Even in our text-based culture, writers have to write in a way that pays attention to how the words of their text are going to be transmitted. A simplistic example would be a modern science textbook. If such a book was read out loud to a class, it would be frustrating, not only to the reader, but the listener. Science textbook was designed to be silently read and studied, and it loses its potency when it's read out loud to a group. The detail's too fine. The amount of information's too tightly packed. Okay? I would say that when read out loud of science textbooks, almost incomprehensible. Compare that to a children's book, such as the Dr. Seuss series. They're much better read out loud than they are silently. 
The writer uses word tricks and rhyming and other methods that please the ears more than the eyes. In fact, it's even the sound of the story more than the content that pleases and is much more easily remembered. Dr. Seuss books were written to be spoken and they're much more effective when used that way. Okay, one more example. I have watched our own music and worship director sing a song under his breath on Saturday nights in order to call that song's words to recollection. He just can't recite them verbatim without the attendant rhythm. Okay? Without the music, they were written to complement. The words lose much of their ability to even be remembered. It's just how music works. Okay? I dare say many of us here at times have sung that little ABC song under our breath to help us remember what letter comes next now. Okay. Further, the modern practice of punctuation is very recent. Okay. Punctuation helps us to sound out written words so that they can become spoken words. In St. Augustine's classic 4th century work, Confessions, he mentions that this dear associate of his, a fellow named Ambrose, was one of the most remarkable men he had ever met because he could read text without having to move his lips. This is because not only did most written languages not have punctuation marks, they didn't have paragraphs. As a matter of fact, they didn't even have beginnings and ends to sentences and many times, they didn't put spaces between words. Okay. This is because they were written in order to be spoken. And by speaking out loud, the natural separations between the words and the sentences and the paragraphs just became free-flowing and apparent. Okay. Many of you are aware of a certain... Hebrew Bible in the Middle Ages that is called the Masoretic Text. Now what makes this Bible so valuable for us today is that a group of Hebrew scholars called the Masorets saw the need to preserve the sound of Hebrew because the world was steadily becoming a place of the written document as opposed to the oral transmission of stories and histories. The Masoretes developed a system of punctuation so that a way for the Jews of the diaspora and future generations who had never heard Hebrew spoken would be able to correctly pronounce those words. Now one final thing and we'll conclude for the day. The ancient world believed that words had great power. Not written words, spoken words. Thus we read that God, what in the world into existence? He spoke the world into existence. He didn't send a memo. <laughs> we read that who is the word? Yeshua. The spoken words 
of a god were considered powerful and living in and of themselves. Now, I don't wish in any way, of course, to diminish the wonder and usefulness of text. In fact, in fact, I really don't even want to say that the spoken is better or worse than text. That's not the issue. Okay. I'm attempting to point out that the form of the Bible was accomplished not in a way meant to be read originally, but to be spoken out loud. Thus, what to us, especially in Levitical law, seems like boring repetitions and needless detail repeated time and again, and saying the same exact thing three or four ways is actually a style needed to make a story interesting, memorable, and it's a way of highlighting important principles when you're speaking it. Joshua, the book of Joshua, is told exactly that way. Our Bibles that have been somewhat rewritten for the modern student to read silently cover that over. Okay. Thus, sometimes the point or purpose of a historical account, the choosing of which events to record and transmit to the future generations in order that an important principle is brought to light gets lost. Now I'm going to do my best to try and draw those hidden principles and purposes out for us as we move through Joshua and then on into the book of Judges. Okay.